So Jamie's about to speak some Japanese. He does actually know his shit. So it's not it's not naive uh, like Westerner. Yeah. For reference for the listener, just so you know that I did come upon this knowledge honestly. I'm a second down black belt in karate. I did karate from the age of six. I was a national champion in karate. I taught karate for a long time. And so I was reading books about Zen Buddhism and Japanese swordsmanship to kind of further inform my practice as a martial artist, which is why I know this shit. Yeah. Um, I'm not just, I'm not actually a weeb. I just, I had a professional reason to know this stuff. And what I might do is isolate that part and put it right at the beginning <laughs> and go, this is why he says this stuff right at the top of the episode. <laughs> This is why Jamie just goes off on one about 15th century samurai in this one. I was saying, no, specifically the speaking Japanese right at the start. Right, like, yeah, <laughs> the really offensive bad Japanese. Exactly, but if I put that at the beginning, that if I put this right now in the beginning, then people might be like, I'm now prepared for him to speak actual Japanese. Hello and welcome to the Comic Lira podcast. The podcast does deep dives into the best of comic books, graphic novels, mangas, and Penny Dreadfuls. I'm your host, the soon-to-be-known-as Comic Stan, and with me, as always, is my magnanimous co-host, it's Jamie. Arigato <laughs> Is that cultural appropriation? Hey. <laughs> yes, it in fact is. Hey, Ryan-san. We are doing cultural appropriation, but in the way where it's like a clumsy attempt to be relatable. Yeah, I mean, I'm enough of, I'm enough of an eponophile that... Is that like a posh word, posh word for weeb? Yeah. <laughs> Basically, yeah. You're feeling particularly uh, Japanese in this uh, episode, I'm guessing? Hey. Are you going to keep this up for the entire episode? Hey. How long do you think before people switch off? Hey, uh, son. <laughs> is, is this offensive? Yes. <laughs> How much of it do you want me to cut out? All of it. Okay. <laughs> no, we leave it in. Like when I'm when I'm mildly offensive, that's that's my prerogative. It's entirely up to you if we leave it or not. I've maintained a neutrality that I can I think I can refer back to in the later court case. At least I've been speaking actual Japanese. I mean that does help. Yeah. Um Although it does remind me of again, like like I mentioned, the weebs who are like, I'm a bit of a Jap Japanese uh, expert, and then you're like, how? It's like, oh, mainly animes. It's like, that's not, I don't think that's quite... That's not how this works. I feel like, I'm an expert on America. Why? Because of The Simpsons. <laughs> and actually, now that I think about it, that's actually probably more accurate. Than yeah, absolutely. So maybe it's the same the other way. I know. What's a British... What's a, like the version of like, someone would think they know England? Doctor Who. Yeah. It's yeah. an American who's really into Doctor Who. Yeah. It's like, yeah, being like, oh, I love England. Bloody Daleks everywhere. That must be an ass. Yeah. Or pe yeah, exactly. So they either like Doctor Who or Sherlock. Or Monty Python. Monty Python. Yeah. Sometimes some of them would have, will have watched The Office and then watched the original Office and been like, you Britishers are all a bit awkward. Britishers. Yes, exactly. Britishers. Yes, yes absolutely. That's it. Exactly. Yeah. That's the plural. <laughs> We, we, this is nowhere near the same relatable scale at all to like impersonation, poor impersonations of non white like yeah. uh, languages, whatever. But what I will say is it's cultural appropriation whenever America redoes a TV show, a British TV show. Fucking A. My favorite one I ever had is I met an American and they were like, oh my God, yeah, my family are from Britain. My, my great granddad was from Dublin. And I sort of looked at them and I was like, you don't know enough. Mm. about irish history to be flaunting your irish heritage because dublin is not in britain and any actual irish person would punch you in the face it's a really weird thing with like 
Americans who have that one ancestor and they're like based their I'm whole, Irish. whole entire <laughs> although we do have that sometimes the British equivalent of that is some people claim to be Scottish when they've got like one sixteenth Scott in their or family or Danish or Scandinavian in some yeah. way like Always they, the other white ones yeah they grow <laughs> a big ginger beard and they're like I'm definitely Danish I'm basically a Viking <laughs> and I've been so guilty of that <laughs> I wasn't I mean I was going to point out but <laughs> You own your prejudices and your... <laughs> we own up to our peccadillos. Yes, exactly. By the way, you called me mag- magnimonious? Magnimonious? Uh, I need to go back to... Uh, magnaminous. Magnaminous. That's very kind of you. Yes. I almost... I think uh, if I had remembered, I was going to do zestful again as a bit of a joke. I would have... It would have been the end of the podcast, Ryan. Because last... The, the previous episode may or may not have been the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, <laughs> depending, on, depending on release. One of the ones, one one of the ones of, we did before. One of the previous episodes That we was did. a good time, though, wasn't it? That was a great time. And I think we'll, we're in for another good time, because... I I've been looking forward to this for days. Well, we, I mean, you've seen the the episode title, but just in case you are blindly downloading every episode, and we love you if you are, but just in case you are, (laughs) just in case you are blindly downloading, we are dipping our toes into the manga, the very famous manga, very well known, Demon Slayer, Mm. which was, I think, prompted a bit because we've always had a bit of a, we should do more mangas, because... We are Westerners. We typically focus on Western comics and graphic novels. But mangas is such a huge area that I especially feel very um, uninformed in, unexperienced in. And it feels like a big part of the comic, you know. It also gives me an opportunity to flex my knowledge about Shintoism and the yokai, which I don't often get. It just doesn't come up very often. And is that specific to this title? I mean, I'm going to make it. <laughs> You're going to cram no, it, it in. It's very in. relevant. It's incredibly relevant. Yeah. Well, that is lucky. Um, I, I think I came for this more from a the tropes of this kind of story. Which, yeah. I mean, we'll get into it. Um, but yes, it's Demon Slayer, which also has a uh, second part of the name, which I might be butchering as I attempt to pronounce. Uh, which is so it's Demon Slayer, and then it's uh. Kimetsu no Yaiba, or mm. Yaiba, uh, which translates to Blade of Demon Destruction, which I do love something about the Japanese translations where, and um, this actually comes as a criticism later in the dialogue, but it's, it's very literal translation. So they literally say like, this word means this, this word means well, this. it's a very literal the... language. Exactly. And I think that is actually going to be my first, I said criticism of it, is the dialogue, which I found, um, it was a bit, because literal, I found it, it's, this is my probably my only criticism, and I don't know if this is specific to this title or just translated mangas in general, that it was quite a literal, a bit stilted dialogue. I have a lot of experience in this because one of my favorite novelists is Haruki Murakami, and obviously he writes in Japanese, and so I've only ever read his work translated into English by an amazing translator called Jay Rubin. And you tend to find there is a very particular character that Japanese takes on once it's been translated into English. Right. And so, you know, the same way that you can sometimes forgive certain comic book shenanigans. Mm. I feel like this is the Jamie forgiving manga shenanigans episode. Yeah. Because definitely I didn't get that same impression, but that's because I've, for well, 15 years now, one of my favorite novelists has been a guy 
whose work I've only read translated from Japanese into English, and so I'm really accustomed to it. Hmm. So do we think, like with me and superheroes, that there's an element of, once you become more... Once you care more about the characters and the stories and everything, and I don't mean for one specific title, but just across a genre, you... Once you make that connection, you just overlook things that might more jump out to new readers. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I've read One Piece, I've read Dragon Ball. Like, I'm probably more familiar with manga than you are. Yeah, de- almost I've read, definitely. I've read more manga. I've not read a lot of manga. Like, mm. people have been telling me to read Bleach for years, and I've just not bothered with it. Of the two of us, you are the manga expert. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I, I've, I've, cer- I've certainly had more experience with it. And to be honest with you, this didn't jump out to me as particularly bad manga dialogue. Mm. Um, it's certainly less stilted than the first chunk of Dragon Ball. I tell you what, it, it it in a comparison. So we know, like again, referring back to the TMNT episode, the stilted like eighties comic superhero comic book dialogue was a bit like hero is in an alley and because they're alone, they are uh, announcing their thoughts or they're speaking their thoughts out loud as just a device of like carrying on the story. Yeah. There's a lot of that in this, not exactly in the same way, but in it reminded me of that same kind of stillness. But I think I'm very aware of the fact that I might not be getting the originally intended way that language was meant to be delivered in English versus the original Japanese. A hundred percent. And we'll get into this. With Japanese fiction, there is a reliance on these tropes and ideas that Japanese people would all be super familiar with that are kind of alien to you. Mm. And so when you're reading Japanese fiction, you'll come across a setting or a character or an idea, and there is this whole set of associations that the author was anticipating being there that you yeah. just don't have as a Westerner. Exactly. And and, and I think it's I think Japanese fiction is almost more tropic in a certain in some regards than Western fiction is. Yeah. Um, because it's again, it's a small island with a population that was incredibly insulated for an awfully long time. And so their storytelling telling traditions are incredibly entrenched. And so, yeah, I think there is a certain amount of this that actually maybe once I, because I have more of the context, once I start giving you a bit more of the context, you'll be like, oh, fuck, that makes sense. Maybe. You know? And this, why I was, there's some areas that I was careful to criticize, like, because of these additional pieces of context, which I don't think you can fault anything for. And then maybe there's some other stuff, we'll get into the nitty gritty that that might still fall under it. Mm. But going to a bit of the, the details of the title itself, because what's like with the TMNT, this is a original title of what is a much larger franchise, which I think we could top off a little bit first. And especially because I learned the pronunciation of the writer and illustrator, oh, go on. which is another single person, so another rare one yep. for us, one person doing it. Again, common manga, I think. Yes, a lot more common, yeah. And the uh, writer and illustrator's name is uh, Koyaharu uh, Gotage. I think I've got that. Yes, Koyaharu Gotage. I think that's... You haven't anglicised that too much. That's the (laughs) overly anglicised pronunciation of it. I don't dare for risk of sounding like the person who goes into um, Subway being like, oh, like a Mexican restaurant, be like, can I have the quesadillas and you're like uh, just say quesadillas, quesadillas. Like, they just just say it western I want some <laughs> just say it western style 
But then the complete opposite end of that is I've been in a subway years and years ago, back before I realized subway was dog shit. Um, We've talked about this in the podcast before. <laughs> but I was there when someone was asking, can I get some jalapenos on that, please? Like, <laughs> so there's a middle ground, I think, mm. where it's like, I'm Western, I'm just going to say it Western, but I'm at least going to pronounce the, the letters in the right way, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but so this single person wrote the entire manga series, as far as I could tell, or at least the main bulk starting with it. And what's especially interesting, it started only in 2016, mm. um, and it's gone strength to strength by very quickly, by February 2021, 150 million copies, and was the... Oh, it's been a sensation, hasn't it? Yeah, top-selling manga for 2019-2020, and uh, is the um, ninth most successful manga franchise of all time, which... For starting in 2016, like that's crazy. Some of these come out and become so popular so yeah, quickly. Absolutely. And the other little tidbit is there's a film adaptation. So there's the tele. There's a oh sick. I didn't know that. So there's the the televised anime. So like mm. an episodic anime. Yeah. But then there's also tie-in films. This film, uh, I think, with like some other animations, was originally meant to be a straight to DVD. Mm turned into uh, because it got a bit of a, a claim being you know uh, anticipation being already a famous franchise yeah. moved to a cinema release oh that's dope and actually has became the highest grossing japanese film of all time and one of the top grossing films in the world even more so than all of the great classic you know exactly how i'm about to say uh spirited away that studio yeah, that studio, Gib- studio studio ghibli Gib- yes yeah, yeah 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 so it was because I love Studio Ghibli films. I prefer them to Disney. <laughs> yeah. The film grossed over $500 million worldwide. Uh, highest grossing film of 2020. And yeah, highest grossing Japanese film and anime film of all time. So we are getting into this very late, despite yeah. it only starting like uh, seven years ago. Mm. But so now we're finally here. We're finally on board the train. And What did you think of it? I thought overall... I thought it was very familiar, a yeah. a story. Um, and I was trying to place earlier. It's one of those things where, you know, when you read something or watch something or whatever, you take in some fiction, you realize there is a trope. Like yeah. this is a trope and you hadn't realized that before. So this trope being the young adult whose family are killed yeah. by something. And then they are taken in by an expert on the thing that killed their family. Yeah. And they become a fighter, hunter, slayer of said thing. And only when reading this, I start to think about what are the things like this in this trope. Uh, the ones I can think of immediately. One, what we've done on here, something's killing the children. Yeah. A uh, bit more of a, more of a well-known one, The Witcher. Yeah. Maybe not, not initially from the start, but the backstory yeah. becomes something like that. Um, the most basic, not all the same tropes. But the, a very general version of the trope, I thought of, um, you know, the Sorcerer's Apprentice. Yeah. So yeah, I've yeah. not actually read anything like that, but, <laughs> but I know the general trope of it is that. There's also something at play here that kind of reminded me of that God of War game and The Last of Us, where you've got somebody looking after kind of defenseless person in mm. an ambivalent world. He's kind of, he, he has that, the, the protagonist has that caretaking role for his sister, doesn't he? Yeah. And we also referred this in the TMNT one a bit, which was the the I will take you in and show you the way of my people kind of yeah. trope. And that is this as well. So for something that came out in 2016, I thought it's it's redoing a somewhat well-known trope. Yeah. Or at least it's a trope that's been a, not overdone, but has been done to a certain extent before. Yeah. But saying that, 
reading it, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed this version of that trope. Um, yeah, I agree. I think it was paced in a way that made me want to see what happens next. Yeah. I struggled initially with the manga reading right to left. Like literally the t- two times we've done a manga, I've gone, oh, bollocks, is this way. Oh, right. oh. readjust <laughs> and, my eyes. Yeah, absolutely. Learn to read right to left. Yeah. But ultimately, I think the biggest thing for me, I enjoyed the little bits of lore you were getting about this, the world building within this, which yeah. is something I keep banging on about with with these kind of texts. Uh, and it made me want to know more about it, which I think is the most important thing. I resented you getting here to talk about it because I was having so much fun reading it. That's the highest compliment you can pay to a comic that we do on this on this podcast. Yeah, ab- yeah, absolutely. I was really enjoying reading it. What did what what were the things you enjoyed specifically? Um, well, again, a little bit of an aponophile. So I generally have a soft spot for Japanese fiction anyway. Mm. Um, and so I think there was, I was really enjoying watching a character who was a bit similar to Red. Not Red, very different to Red. But yeah, I was just kind of enjoying the general manga tropes. Mm. And I was just kind of enjoying immersing myself in a manga a little bit. I don't know that there was anything specific that I was enjoying that doesn't lead me on to some of the stuff that I wanted to talk about that currently would make no sense. Right um so yeah maybe yeah i mean i was enjoying it on that level i was really enjoying watching some of the uh yokai stuff that i've been reading about for a little while now come into play in a piece of fiction i thought that was really interesting i mean i know that that's all over japanese anime and manga um but it's nice it's mm. fun to see it at play and now know? obviously i 100 percent know exactly what you're talking about yeah uh, of course but for the listeners who might not know do you want to maybe get into a bit what that is well the yokai is a feature of japanese folklore right and it's the monsters in japanese folklore and so when you are when you dig under the surface in anime like late 20th century anime it's fucking everywhere it's the basis of pokemon and digimon mm. Um, there was uh, an anime cartoon that I really enjoyed as a kid called Flint, I think, which is this kid who had a hammer, um, which he could use to turn these evil monsters good again. And that's all based on the yokai tradition. Which also reminds me of Pokemon, which was training and Yeah, absolutely. Capturing. And then the yokai are super, really, really raveled up in Shintoism as well. And so there's just this really strong undercurrent theme of the native Japanese religious practices flowing through this text. And the Shintoism, obviously, again, I know, obviously, but for the listeners. <laughs> so Shintoism is a native Japanese religion. Mm. Um, it is kind of related to Buddhism, but it's actually more of a native Japanese pantheism, if you know what I mean by pantheism. Uh, again, I mean, do you want me to explain it or do you want, do you want to explain no, it? No, so pantheism, a pantheism, it. pantheism is a religion that has lots of different gods. Right. Like a, a polytheist, polytheist, something? It's not the same as polytheism. Right. So polytheism is where you have a pantheon of gods. Mm. Um, pantheism is more where you have local gods. And so the Norse tradition could be, is polytheistic. But it also has a certain level of pantheism because different people from different areas would maintain shrines to different gods for different reasons. And so, like, if you were a farmer in the Norse tradition, in the Saxon tradition, you were more likely to have a shrine to Thor. And if you were a soldier, you'd probably have one to Tyr. Right. And in Japan, there were Shinto shrines to local 
deities. So these local, they were kind of yokai as well, mm. but these local creatures and myths, you would have shrines to them that you would pray to for safe passage through mountain passes. And so a Shinto shrine that you would see in Edo, old Tokyo, mm. would be really different to a Shinto shrine in Kyoto because you had a different set of folklore and different pantheistic gods. Mm. Does that make sense? Yep. Yep. And uh, just to contribute from my side, yeah. a little known fact, uh, Tokyo and Kyoto are anagrams of each other. Yes. So that's my little bit. Yeah. Um, but yeah, old Edo. Edo is very... So Edo is the original name for Tokyo, and it's a very interesting place. Right. So the... Was it Yao... Yao... Yokai. Yokai. Yes. Close enough. Um, so that... Did that have the similar amount of... So you said about, like, like capturing and training or, you know, turning them good. Yeah. Uh, did it have as much of the slaying as this text? Or is that, like, a, this... Is that how this does it different? Yeah, that's one of the ways that this does it different. And the Oni, which are the demons, mm. the way that they appear in this is very traditional, and I'll get into that later when we actually start talking about them. Yeah. Um, but the idea of kind of going in and slaying them they were generally something that you were wary of and you tried to appease. You wouldn't necessarily go out and start scrapping with them. So my theory, based on what you've just said, is could this be a bit of a Western-influenced manga in the sense that maybe appealing more to the more modern, like, you know, fighter fighting against evil and obviously i'm not saying like that's always been it that's always been a thing in you know lore and yeah lore I mean, and mythology yeah so this 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 is definitely an extension of japanese folklore mm. and and not everything that is happening here and that is at play here is directly taken from the folklore but it's heavily informed by it and they're using it as kind of a basis for their story mm. Which is really interesting. Mm. And I, I think that's what I found the most interesting about it, actually. Now that you've forced me to name it. <laughs> yeah. Now that we're actually talking about it and I've developed my thoughts on it. Mm. Um, that's why we're here. It's why we do this. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really... Do you know what? It's a really fun practice, isn't it? In actually developing your thoughts on something to the extent that you can talk about them. Mm. And I don't think it's something that a lot of us do very often. And the, having the podcast gives us an opportunity to do that. And it's really great fun. We kind of force each other to articulate, whether consciously or unconsciously, mm. to articulate feelings and thoughts. Yeah, 100%. And hopefully people are listening for that valuable insight. Or at the very least, for the dick jokes. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> but like when I saw, obviously, Demon Slayer... It was only then when reading it that I kind of linked the Slayer part of it to a lot of Western stuff like like Demon Slaying, Vampire Slaying, so like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Blade for Marvel, which probably themselves have are then rooted in things older than that, which I'm just I just don't know about. But that's what made me think of a Western influence on this Japanese specific monster lore. So there is traditionally a relationship between certain elements of the folklore and swordsmanship. But generally, that relationship isn't swordsman going out and killing right. the, the, the yokai or the onni or whatever it will be. Um, generally, you know, swordsmanship is directly about protecting your retainer. Um, so protecting the local shogun that you were employed by, or if you were a ronin, defending your honor or finding a new retainer. Mm. Um, there aren't a whole lot of stories in the Japanese folklore about people directly fighting with the yokai and the onni. Um, it's very much stories about people being wary of them. And often the yokai would come from places that humans 
in every culture have a certain kind of folkloric wariness of the woods, the mountains, I mean, snowy places. I'd say we're, I got to issue 10, you got to issue 15. 15, yeah. There's a, in that area, there's a lot of, I'd say the first seven to eight are almost exclusively mountain-based settings. And I'm guessing that's to do with the original lore of the, of the monsters. Particularly the Oni. So the Oni are known as demons. They, in the Japanese folklore, they're heavily anthropomorphized but they'll have this kind of slightly demonic cat-like appearance. Mm. The big teeth, the powerful forearms, that kind of almost feline head shape that they take on when they form in Demon Slayer. Yeah. Um, imagine a more exaggerated version of that and you've got an Oni. Right. Oni would steal children away. That's, yeah. that's what Oni did. And they lurked in the remote villages in the mountains and they lived in the woodland between two villages that had a mountain in between them Mm. and so really they were i mean an extended metaphor for places that it was dangerous to go yeah places that you know you're in the woods on a fucking mountain it's cold it's japan this is a place where you could die and so they're kind of you think every culture has its this is why this area is dangerous. Yeah, lore. I mean, you look at the Grimm's Brothers fairy tales and mm. the relationship with the woods in those, if you go into the woods today. Yeah. Um, and so I think every culture has a similar relationship with its woodland and there's always folkloric stories that come out of the woods. Even if you look at some classic British folklore, folklore heroes, Robin Hood being one of them, um, he was in Sherwood Forest. He lived in the forest. He was, you know, a raider who lived in the forest. Mm. He was a reason not to go into the forest if you were a nobleman. And so, yeah, there's a certain element of that at play here. And it's very telling that our protagonist and his sister come from a remote mountain village. Mm. Speak of the design of the, um, the Oni and the demons. Yeah. What do you think of the, the art in general? It's great. So... One of my things when looking at it is I enjoyed the art, but one thing I thought was with manga in general, it does it feel like, am I right in saying, or is this just a completely uh, naive take, the manga is a bit more of a homogenized style? Yeah, like, I would say so. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. And we have a thing in Western culture where we refer to something as having anime eyes. Yes. And that's because there's such a homogenous style. If you actually look at early illustrations of the yokai, Manga is highly informed by it. Yeah, makes um, sense. I, I have a couple reference books in there that we I can like take pictures of and we can put in somewhere, mm. maybe even into the video, the YouTube videos that come out of this conversation. Sure, sure. Um, because the way that manga is drawn is very, very reminiscent of early Japanese art. Mm. Um, it's it's an art style that is again quite firmly linked to the traditions of that country mm. and that culture. So because the art style is a bit homogenized across the genre, I feel like. There's less to talk about than than when we talk about uh, Western comics because they're so much more varied in their style. There's more diversity, isn't there? Yeah. Well, there's more diversity in Western comics in general when we get into superhero comics. Yes. They're kind of their own tradition, aren't they? We say, so with the Western, I think specific companies like the big two marvel and dc have their as we as we coined or we found out the coin phrase the house styles whereas anime a manga does seem to be styles across the genre rather than one company i mean you've got to remember that there are certain there were certain magazines where these stories would appear as collections Mm. so shojin jump is a really great example and this was actually i think published by jump comics yeah yeah yeah. so this is a shojin title this is Mm. a shojin jump title 
And so Shojin Jump published Dragon Ball, for instance. Um, mm. They had a hand in Pokemon stuff. They promoted a lot of Pokemon stuff back in the day. Um, you know, the Dragon Quest series, which is a really popular RPG game. Yeah, I've heard of it. I've not experienced it. If you're a Japanese, if you're if you're a Japanese RPG fan, you are more likely to be a Dragon Ball, a Dragon Quest fan than you are a Final Fantasy fan. Right. Dragon Quest is huge. Again, that looks very Shojin Jump. Um, and so it may well be that actually a lot of the manga that you've seen exported to the West has a whiff of the Shojin Jump House style to it. Mm. I'm. I don't know. This is a hard and fast fact. Um, I would love to learn more about manga and have a deeper understanding but my assumption going into this mm. is that some of that kind of homogenous flavor that you're seeing is comes from the same place as the uh, the dc and marvel art styles or actually there's a bunch of people all kind of collaborating with each other and working with each other and competing with each other making this stuff mm. who are you know ribbing from the same places and the same art style and that kind of stuff mm. one thing i would say did know some small things that 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 I liked and I thought were unique to this title. Um, specifically, two things. One, the art of the Oni, so the style of the demons. In some panels, it ranged a bit, which I think was contextual. I think some yeah. there was like a transformation, and it depended on what, yeah. what level of transformation you're at. So the main character, to go in a little bit of the plot. Um, yeah, I think Yeah, generally, we are covering, again, issues 1, 2, 10, 15-ish, around mm. that kind of way. So again, if you want zero spoilers for that, just jump in we we recommend it if you're looking to dip your toe in manga especially then this is a great place to start i'd say especially uh, as a modern t- more modern title yeah absolutely but the style of the uh demons you see it change a bit in the main character sister who very early on becomes a demon but immediately and this actually is reminiscent of pokemon there's a bit of a they're a demon but there's something different yeah and that's the running kind of uh mm. hook mis- mystery hook that's like huh they're a demon but they are retaining some of their humanity somehow, and that's almost never happened before. And again, there's this kind of theme of the Chosen One that runs through manga. Yes. You see it in One Piece, you see it in Dragon Ball, you certainly see it in the Pokemon Adventures manga, and we're seeing that play here, aren't we? Yeah, I have some issues a bit more with that, which we'll, <laughs> which, which we'll get into. I think in good faith. Mm. But, um, but so the art of the demons, again, you see it in different ways, at its best, and by best I mean like when they were kind of going more full transformation, I found some of the panels genuinely creepy, which is a huge um, compliment to the art style. Uh, the biggest I could pay is it reminded me of Junji Ito, who in my eyes is even yeah. beyond manga, across all all illustration and art, I think he's one of the best at capturing creepy, yeah, 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 um, creepy especially black and white. So the fact that some of these parts reminded me of that, I was like, that's great. Yeah. Maybe he was an influence because I think Ito's been going on for a while, so yeah. possibly an influence. Uh, the other style I liked was the mid fighting, especially the water based uh, sword techniques, yeah, and the incorporate the incorporating of the the wave look and the water with the sword strikes. I mean, the relationship between swordsmanship and water is deep. Mm. Be like water is that like a, a common? Well, is that like a bastardized that's, that's, a, that's a Bruce Lee thing. So right. that's more of a Chinese thing um but obviously japan's all coastline isn't it <laughs> japan's a very small island so it has a lot of coastline a lot of water and so there's this big relationship between um samurai and the water mm. um there's a famous story about 
uh, a chap, a Ronin, who wrote the Book of Five Rings. His name escapes me now. Anybody who knows something about the samurai law will know about it. And he um, was going to a fight on a boat and he didn't take his sword because he didn't want it to get rusty. And so he pulled up on this boat and beat the shit out of somebody with an oar. Right. Uh, <laughs> as you do. As you fucking that do. That does sound a bit in British coastline, kind of Cornwall kind of way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, so he fought another swordsman who had a katana and he killed him with an oar. And there's a whole school of swordsmanship now where they train with oars. Mm. And so their their boken, the boken, the, the wooden sword that you'll train with in kendo, this whole style of swordsmanship has a boken that is in the shape of an oar as opposed to being in the shape of a traditional bokken. Right. And that is directly related to that one guy. Right. And then there's this really intrinsic relationship between swordsmen and fishing, um, because fishing for carp, obviously carp are really prominent in Japan, koi. Mm. Um, it's where we get the Magikarp and the Gyarados from. Yep. They're directly yep. related from Jap... They're directly lifted from Japanese folklore. And fighting a very strong carp a good koi can feel heavier on the line than it actually is because they're so strong. Mm. And that was seen as a great corollary for swordsmanship. Like just the, the just the level of physical fitness that you'd need and the way you'd need to be able to read the actions of a fish that you can't see was seen as a really useful training tool for a swordsman. Mm. And so that relationship between swordsmanship and the water, again, is very traditional. And that's something that comes up quite a bit here is physical training of the sword. So not just learning sword techniques, but literally like being strong and strong strikes and and this this point in the story of being ready to open up a a split open a boulder with your sword kind of thing. Yeah. It's about like if you're strong enough, you will you can learn and train to be strong enough to do this and then you'll be ready. And again, in Japanese swordsmanship, position of your blade is really more important than it would have been in Western swordsmanship. Mm. Because a I mean, West- Western sword is like, make the sword as big as possible and just swing it with all your might. That, but also Western swords generally have two blades. Mm. A, a British or European longsword mm. would have had, would have been, would have been sharpened on both sides. Yeah. Because you just swing in it any which way. Yeah. And I guess. Well, I mean, to be honest with you, having a sword sharpened on both sides is an ideal. A sword sharpened. A sword sharpened. <laughs> yeah. We're going, we'll go Sean Connery for a while, if you wish. Um, having your sword, having your, having two edges on your blade is an ideal. There's a reason that that's not the case with Japanese swords. Because you are uh, disciplined to be putting oil in one way. Shit still. So they had. See, that's the opposite of why why I thought the stereotype was. Yeah, no, it's a really interesting thing that curly steel, like like um, figured Damascus steel, is seen as being superior, but. The reason that Japanese swords make use of folded steel is because there was a high level of impurity in their steel. They didn't have great forging techniques. Mm. And they forged their blades under in forges with really low heat. And they folded the steel to get some of those carbon impurities out. And so what you would have is an, a core of a very soft, high carbon steel, which in the West would have been deemed as super low quality steel. Mm. And then an outer core of lower carbon steel that's had all the folds put through it to fold the impurities out. The effect of that was that the sword was soft on the inside, rigid on the outside, and so it was quite good at taking quite heavy blows, Mm. and it wouldn't shatter. But it meant that you could only really forge a Japanese sword to have a live edge on one side, whereas with Western steel that was much lower carbon and much stronger, 
you could forge a blade, forge a blade that didn't need to have such a profound spine, they mm. call it. And so you could sharpen it on both sides. So again, as with all things, limitation is the mother of creation, right? And so this very, very direct and very accurate style of style of swordsmanship developed in Japan because they could only really get one edge on their blades. And so they needed to be very accurate with their sword. They needed to know what their blade position was going to be with every cut because you can't just yeet it back mm. and, go and go and go in for a cut with the top of your blade. You always need to be really conscious of how you're moving with your sword. And this is a great fucking representation of Japanese swordsmanship. Mm. But see, that's why I thought that I imagined Japanese being like, we're going to sharpen one side extensively, so you just got to be really careful and disciplined. And I imagine like British medieval, just like, ah, just swinging <laughs> it across your head, like, I'll hit something eventually. Well, it's interesting because there's kind of two veins in um, British, like West European medieval swordsmanship, isn't mm. there? So there's two distinct skill sets that a medieval knight would need. One of them is that they were a tank. Right. Not yeah, everyone. Yeah. Very move, few move people. Move slowly, protect, highly protected. Very few people on a medieval battlefield were armoured. Yeah. You were cutting through peasants with pikes. Mm. And so for that, yeah, just fucking swing, my G, and you're going to get three people. Mm. But then when a knight met another knight, then that shit becomes very intense. And there's a lot of half-swording. Half-swording is where you hold the blade with one hand midway through and then angle your two hands and use it as a stabbing dagger. Mm. And then there's the death stroke, which is where you would hold the blade by the, the hold the sword by the blade, hit the fucker with the pommel. Mm. And that was the most effective way of killing another knight. And if you look at medieval treatises on sword fighting, they're often holding the sword by the blade and just swinging the fucking pommels at each other mm. and using it as a, basically as a war hammer. Mm. Um, whereas Japanese swordsmanship is this very direct thing and the techniques are very specific and the way that you you know use the cuts and angle your body is all very specific and very very yeah very specific and then there's mm. this kind of close guarded relationship that families would have with their family style that would be passed down that way um and one of the people i'm going to talk about in a little bit yagyu Nori, um had a swords a style of swordsmanship that survives today in japan mm. you can still go and learn it um and his style was very specific and, you know, you can kind of, even now, you can spot somebody who's using his style and be like, oh, yeah, that's that. <laughs> and you said this representation, or this was a good representation of specific sword techniques? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, even though they've kind of mangled it. Yeah. With it, it's its own law, yeah, world building version. But, but just watching the position of that, of that character model as they were using those cuts, I was like, yeah, that looks mm. like, that looks very familiar to me as Japanese swordsmanship. Yeah. Uh, speaking of the art again, I I we I might have had this question when we did the Pokemon Adventures one, and that was so long ago. It seems I might have I probably completely yeah, forgotten. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I probably completely forgotten if you had an answer and were able to answer this. Is the significance of the black and white in is that all across all manga? And is there a reason? Because they're printed cheaply, right? Because they so, print them all in like volumes yeah. or chapters. Yeah, exactly. And so manga will be printed on normal little paperback books and it's printed on fairly pulpy paper because mm. it's cheap. And so it's just a much more affordable way of getting out there. And I suppose it's become a consistent style for them. Very rare that you see mm. a manga colorized. And if you do, it's largely for a Western market. 
See, that's one thing I was going to point about this specifically, but I guess this is for any violent manga, is mm. there's a definitely a, a, it feels like a stylistic choice when there's very violent, bloody scenes, but in black yeah. and white. Reminds me of The Walking Dead, the original yeah. back then. Um, and you're looking at these scenes and I think you're filling in, you're literally filling in some of the colors in your head and that kind of gives it, makes you imagine it worse than it is like that kind of effect well do you know that in japanese cartoon japanese and chinese cartoons they'll often take the color out of the blood yeah i've seen that which gives it a very weird because they make it white and so sometimes you'll just see a room that's got a dead person in it and it's covered with this milky white fluid and you're like someone was someone went that's better (laughs) yeah yeah and i'm looking at it going that's infinitely worse yeah (laughs) Just like you've killed somebody and then you've spaffed on everything. You see the uh, the South Park episode with yeah. Randy. Oh, the, oh, the spooky ghost. <laughs> Reminds it's me like, of that. I know what will make this blood look less graphic. What if we make it all look like cum? It's like the opposite of America where they're like, violence, absolutely fine. Yeah, Fill yeah. your boots with blood, literally. Um, but the a hint of nudity or sex... Absolutely not. Yeah, Banned. Banned. Wildly completely. inappropriate. Christians whereas, do not like nudity. Whereas Japan, like, this blood's a bit much. Can we replace it with cum? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know when you know when you hear us have a conversation on the podcast as you're doing it and you go, that's mm. gonna end up as a fucking short, isn't it? <laughs> I mean I mean, I'm gonna listen back to this while editing, and I, I'm going to have to make the choice. Can I make a YouTube friendly version? <laughs> of this or not i mean tiktok i don't think they give a shit but yeah. youtube youtube shorts is kind of where Can't we make... get your tits out on tiktok anymore though i i miss that news somehow um but i'm just as saddened to hear it was regards. a while ago that you could there was a whole genre of tiktok called the thirst trap i mean that's been around since bloody snapchat and instagram hasn't it well this is it yeah absolutely but it was prominent there was a particular there was a particular genre of them where somebody would be like sat on a chair and they would like throw a shoe in the air and kick it and that would be the transition to them having their tits out. Right. Well, I'm going to change the subject only because I don't want us to talk about this this much that I have to list it as an o- a topic in the description of the episode. <laughs> Jamie and Ryan talk about Demon Slayer and the straps. straps. <laughs> yeah. While Jamie's getting like really high-minded about Japanese folklore yeah. and titties. <laughs> yeah, we're appealing to the highbrow and the lowbrow. Dude, they're the two sides of my personality that are always at war. I think that's the definition of the podcast. <laughs> we go highbrow with the literature and we go lowbrow with comics and then on the really dark days we do hentai. Um, um, anyway, <laughs> we should definitely do some hentai. Just I to know. don't think the literary um, literary value of hentai is up to snuff with what we are kind of aiming snuff for. Snuff is a really badly chosen term That's, there. Yeah, up to par, I should say. So something that I um, really enjoy is when old art is just super fucking dirty. And I rediscovered an old blues artist that I love from a while ago who everybody should listen to, and their name is Lucille Bogan. I think I've heard this. It's like really explicitly dirty songs, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. From like the the 30s? Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And it's just like, there's one of them called Shave Em Dry, and it's about Hmm. how she wants somebody to fuck her so hard her pubes fall off. Well, and you're like, that is impressive, love. Like, how did you, how, 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 in the deeply Christian South in the 1930s, did that get recorded? Because it got recorded, Ryan. She was the, the northern boys of her era. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't know the northern boys, look them look up. Look them up, yeah, 100%. If you have one takeaway from this episode, it's Lucille Bogan and the northern boys. Oh, sure. I'll put a link in the, uh, in the episode. Oh, should we make a playlist? <laughs> <laughs> this is the playlist that you have to listen to when you read Demon Slayer. 
<laughs> they're like, I think I've got the wrong one. It's, <laughs> it's not the same at all. It's just Jamie's chill playlist. It's got a lot of the Smiths on it. <laughs> I mean, that'd be better than the bloody the, well, Northern <laughs> Boys, especially. Back to the title, because yeah, okay. as we have to wrangle it back in, um, I mentioned the Walking Dead comparison earlier. Yeah. And another part, again, this might be completely coincidental, but the demon-like sister, specifically with the... Well, it's not a muzzle, but it's like Nizo- a... Nizoku? A, is that like a, a horse thing? Because it looked like a horse shape kind of mm. thing. But carrying her around, your demon uh, friend slash relative, reminded me of specifically of Michonne from The Walking Dead. Yes. Which is like demon... She has two zombies chained to it, Two she? zombies, uh, check, arms cut off and lower jaw cut off. Yeah. So they literally cannot bite her and turn her. Um, and by walking with the, she uses them as like a camouflage. Yeah. So other zombies like, is that a human? No, it's two. It's like three zombies. It looks like from a, you know they they get confused by the. She's like camouflage kind of. That scene where she kills them both when she realizes yeah. she doesn't need them anymore. Really brutal. Really cool. I love Michonne's character. Yep, great in the comics and bastardized a bit in the live I've action. Not seen the TV show. You are glad you haven't. I've read the comics. I've not watched the TV show. Comics are goated the one thing that i found really funny is that i noticed the exact moment where the tv show started being produced in the comics like as in i i was reading the comics and all of a sudden i was like this is where the tv show started i fucking bet it is and it was when you met isaac and his tiger and i was Hmm. like i bet robert kirkman just wanted to write something in just Hmm. to go are you gonna do it guys are you actually gonna put a tiger in there and i hear they did didn't they yeah, yeah, they did. Uh, it's badly, <laughs> badly CGI'd. <laughs> I just thought that was a really fun move by Robert Kirkman, but mm. I, I, I read it and I had that assumption. I was like, he's jumping his own shark here to see if they'll do mm. it in the TV show. And then I did a bit of research and Robert Kirkman said exactly that. He was like, I just wanted to put something mental in there to see mm. if they'd do it. And they did. <laughs> but it was also, it was a fun explanation because the character Isaac comes across like a king and people think he's a king because he's got And he a just tiger. worked in the zoo, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, he was just a, he was the lion tamer. <laughs> tiger. Tiger, te- tiger feeder. Yeah, he was like the keeper for the tiger. Keeper, wasn't he? Yes, exactly. Um, I, to Demon Slayer. I thought you might enjoy the severed head with the arms growing out of it because it just reminded me of Geodude. Yeah. And that, that scene, particularly, again, come back to dialogue. One thing, another comparison between manga in general and superhero comics specifically is the lines of inner dialogue while during like fight scenes and stuff. Yeah, and you know what? It was more permissible here than I sometimes think it is in comics. And I don't know if it's just because I liked this better. Based on how I feel about both, Mm. I would say it's probably because of liking one more than the other. Yeah. What I thought, from my side, and this is not like a, I don't think this is an objective take, this is my subjective. Mm. For me, because there was such extensive monologuing, in the smallest actions, yeah, that for me kind of breached my suspense of dis- uh, disbelief. Your so suspension of disbelief. There was literally yeah. like a blade coming down, mm. and the demon had like a full paragraph of thought as yeah. the blade was coming in. For me, I was like, I don't think superhero comics that I've read have done that to that extent. Yeah, but alternate like superhero comics, they have mid fights where they're having paragraphs and it's between punches, so it's it's but, similar. But then, if you've watched any amount of anime, and I've not watched a lot of anime, I've watched a little bit. But there'll be entire Dragon Ball Z episodes where somebody's charging up, right? There's like half a season of Dragon Ball Z where Goku, where Gohan is just going, Goku, yeah. No, he's he's doing like the sun thing, I yeah, think, yeah. Isn't he? like feed your power or whatever it was. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's very common. I've seen a lot in One Punch Man, the, the only other anime that I've probably Man's seen. So 
Okay. We will definitely do One Punch Man. Have Se- you read One Punch Man? No, but because we're going to do it for when season three finally hey, comes out. Hey, I get to read One Punch Man again. I yeah, fucking awesome. love One Punch Man. But now... Satoshi's g- great. But even better, lucky you, you get to read it with a superhero fan pointing out all the superhero tropes as we're going along. Yeah, well, it's... Yeah, no, it's a very knowing take, isn't it? It's a it's a parody and homage. Like, it's, it's a very good parody. Like, the all-powerful Superman, essentially, who can be anyone. Like, it plays with that trope so well. But he got there by doing 100 push-ups, 100 sit-ups, 100 squats, and running 10 kilometers a day. And, and always being hot. Fell out. And always being hot as well. Yeah. He, he always had the aircon on yeah. high and the windows closed. <laughs> He's such a funny chap, isn't he? He's great. I mean, all the characters are great in that. Um, but, yeah, in the animes, there was, like, there's a lot of dialogue in actions like that and that seems like it's explicitly lifted directly from the from the original mangas but again there's this real like in all the japanese fiction that i've read and then even in kazuya Shiguru, who is a british writer of japanese descent so his parents are japanese but he was raised in england um but i think at some point in his kind of literary diet he got into japanese fiction and it's very much the case with murakami that there's this high level of introspection in the characters and so you're often seeing not a lot of dialogue and a lot of introspection. Mm. And that's just kind of part of the character of Japanese literature. And so I suppose that follows through into his manga. And I think, to be fair, uh, that's all fair and good. Because again, for me, for super ones, there's a lot of scenes where someone's flying through the sky or like yeah. the Flash is running just uh, anywhere and everywhere. And the they Flash are having... is running, is he? Yeah, the Flash runs sometimes. <laughs> Gotta go fast. <laughs> Gotta go fast. Have you tried running faster? That, that fixer. <laughs> We've basically just recreated one of our shorts. <laughs> oh, basically. Yeah. But they'll will they will have these long introspective yeah, monologues absolutely. as well. So I think it's it's definitely a trope of manga and Western comics. Mm. But get like specific action scenes, it's a bit different on each side, but similar problems, I'd yeah. say. But going through the pacing, uh, yes. something we've not talked about yet for this, but we normally do get into quite a bit in Western. Yeah. What did you did you find the pacing? Because I've got some thoughts, but I want to hear, can you compare it to other mangas? Is it better or worse? Is it the same? I thought it was relatively well paced. Um, you are right. There are these moments of heavy introspection. And there are moments where quite a lot of dialogue takes place over actually quite a short period of time. But in terms of the way the story moves along, I felt like there wasn't any dead issues in the 15 that I read. No, and my only qualm, and it's it's like a nitpicking one, yeah, I found yeah. some parts moved quite fast. Yeah. But it did still leave room for the more emotional beats. So those yes. did, were prolonged and done in enough time to give it the emotional heft it needed. Like, I really felt that we saw enough of his family pre-Nozoku getting Z'd up, for want of a better word. Yes. Um... But like the parts where the pace goes a bit faster for me was like the point from discovering the family slaughtered to sister demon. Oh, we fought a bit. Oh, she's and now now a demon hunter's found us. And oh, now we've kind of resolved a bit. And then it slowed down for the realizing that the sister still had a bit of humanity. In her. So it slowed down at the right time. But what I, what I think is really easy to overlook is the fact that between maybe issue five and issue 10, there are two panels where he skips a full year yes and He's i like, had to oh, re- I was doing this for a year and you're like oh shit you're now a teenage boy <laughs> i had to reread that because yeah. what happened there was there's one part where he mentions oh it took me a year and a half to this i'm like bloody hell year and a half it's like and then 
the sister, whose name I don't have in front of me, but then she fell into a coma for a year. And I was like, <laughs> wait, what? It's like, hang on, is this a year on top of the year and a half we've just done? Or and then it turned out it wasn't. It was it was the year, it was the the year of yeah. his training. She was in a coma. Oh no, he did half a year training, and yeah. then the other year was her in a coma, and yeah. then we're up to present. So And it, I feel like in an American comic that would have been the entire run. <laughs> See, I just now, I just now had a thought. I think yeah. the difference is in Western comics, it will skip more time between panels. Yeah, but I think it relies more on um, trope kind of intuition, mm. where you, like say it goes from night to day, and you go, "Oh, it's the nighttime now," or then the seasons will change. You go, "Ah, it's it's now later in the year." So I think Western comics do more that, and even in between, like things that happen over a day i think it skips more between that with a more of an understanding from the reader whereas this goes like almost in real time at parts and we've seen probably the best example of a heavily dilated timeline in eight billion genies yeah i mean that but that was very explicit like yeah but but it was a really really great use of that mechanism whereas i feel this was kind of like oh and it took me a year to do this and you're like cool but your character model hasn't changed and then it does a few panels later yeah exactly you're kind of like oh well this is just a bit jarring like yeah yeah, no i fit i hear you there yeah i didn't think of that as pacing i thought of it as storytelling but you are right it's an element of pacing isn't it it's the way that that story's paced yeah and it could be a bit it could be a bit of both and again this could be again why i'm hesitant to criticize it is because it could be a trope of the genre rather than of this specific title and i I feel like manga does love a long training montage like there's a whole bunch of dragon ball where goku's just kind of learning his powers right yeah kid goku with a tail there was yeah then later one the one i remember from my after school watching days was he was stuck in a no not stuck in he was traveling in a ship to the to piccolo's home planet yeah and he was training in heavy gravity yeah so it was like to get there it's going to take like a year for you to get there because everyone else is already there but you can train along the way and change the gravity so he trains on the heavy gravity so parts there's this story going along on the planet and then it cuts to goku just like doing <laughs> doing like the lightest weights but like the but like oh, the gravity's really strong uh, it's gonna help me and, you know, a bit of exposition um but the dialogue in terms of explaining the time jumps yeah there was one part i know it specifically as more of an example of the literal translation of the of the original japanese oh uh, right okay so it's my this is sometimes i read i'll go i have to note this line down yeah just to see if you like picked up on it as well so and again you mentioned what it was regarding the line specifically was he's talking about his training he goes oh, it took me a year to develop this or whatever and then in the middle of that it goes also nezuko has lost consciousness for almost a year and a half <laughs> and it's just so like because he's writing a diary at that point yeah so it almost feels like as if it kind of feels like if he was writing a letter to someone and yeah. you're reading this letter from me, like, training's taken me a year. So, bloody hell, that's long. Also, my sister's been a coma for a year and a half. Wait, what? It's the <laughs> first time you've mentioned it, Sonny. Yeah. <laughs> have I missed a part? Like... <laughs> like, who in the world would you care enough to give that information to, but not care enough about it to give that information a year and a half late? Exactly. And <laughs> even if you're just getting the one letter a year and a half later... <laughs> Might be like, maybe start with that. <laughs> I am sad because my sister has fallen into a coma. It's it would be-, be the title of the letter, wouldn't it? It's especially sad because it's been a year and a half. <laughs> this is someone who had a limited word count. They were like, <laughs> they were trying to get a tweet out. It's like, I got to condense this. <laughs> Did you notice something as well about the setting, the temp, the, the setting within time? Uh, the setting is in the the time period when it's set. Yeah, when do you think it's set? 
So I, I mean, I do not have the relevant information to make a proper mm. guess, but it feels like that. It kind of feels like feudal Japan kind of farming and small villages kind of era between 1912 and 1926. Wow. Oh, so is that it's directly from the comic? Uh, from yeah. the manga. Right. So you know when he's fighting that big oni that's mm. eaten 14 kids in the wisteria patch. Yeah. He asks it, "What? What era are we in?" And he says, "Is it the Meiji era?" And the protagonist goes, "says No, it's the Taisho era." Right. So that relates the 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 eras in Japan are very strict because they go off who the emperor was. The Taisho era in Japan is the interwar years, so it's well not quite interwar because it's pre a tiny bit pre-war and then mostly interwar. Hmm. So Taisho was the emperor between 1912 and 1926. So this is set in the early 20th century, right? And you kind of don't get that vibe from it, do you? As 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 you as you correctly yeah. identified, it feels feudal, and it's not. And I think the reason we or me specifically and a lot of audience would have that is just not having the relevant knowledge of yeah. this different culture. Yeah. So like when it's you know if it's England or America, we could be like, oh, it's medieval times or you know that kind of. We could. Well, just... no, it looked feudal to me as well. Yeah. Like... But my, I'm pulling that word of like my very limited like searching my brain like feudal is that a thing? Like I threw that out there because i knew i was confident you would correct me if it was wrong yeah i mean he's wearing a very specific type of kimono Mm. which is the precursor to a gi can't remember the exact name of it now and i wish i could but it's like the same kind of kimono that an aikido um practitioner or a kendo practitioner would wear right so the big the big coarse black cotton gi and that is not that by the by the Taisho era, certainly, that would have not been the way that an everyday Japanese person would have been dressing. Mm. That is traditional, like feudal era, maybe kind of mid Meiji era attire. Mm. By the Taisho era, Japan was modernizing right. heavily. Um, and so yeah, you just wouldn't expect to see somebody in that kind of kimono in the Taisho era. And so they're really relying on the iconography of feudal Japan, but then they're very specifically stated. It's the Taisho era. Like those words come out of the protagonist's mouth. And you're like, well, that just doesn't sit right. right. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I mean, it goes without saying, I did not pick up on this at mm. all. Uh, I did recognize the eras as just being like, an, I inferred it was just an establishing like time. Like it was, I, I took it most for the context of how long has that monster been? Yeah, this for? monster has been doing, been here for X amount of years and yeah. these eras define it. So I was like, yeah, I'm cool with that. But now that you've mentioned the time, the time um, setting, it actually puts into context one of my criticisms, or like criticisms of a very small specific era. So there's the part where this mysterious child appears and is suddenly teaching the main character how to get even better because the the teacher has basically said, "I've taught you everything. You need to build upon your own skills now." And then he can't. And then the ghost turns up. It's like, "I'll actually help you." So so. Is there a th- oh? Can I say this little bit? Go for then it. If you've got that's the actual a whole lore. thing. Yes. That's a whole thing. All I noticed was, and I think you must have noticed this as well. But the the language this ghost child uses of um, basically saying like, "Oh, you're trying to be a man, or you should, you know, to move forward, you need to be more of a man. Like, why aren't you being a man? That kind of thing." So, not realizing that the the time setting, I thought that's a bit odd. Just intuitively thinking it was the present, I was like, "Yeah, that's a bit." like old-fashioned yeah. like gender norms kind of stuff and now that you've placed the time saying i go oh that makes a hundred percent sense now because that's exactly how people would talk at that time so the two the two people who teach him mm. 
they are two they are wearing the masks of two very particular figures from Japanese folklore. Foxes. Well, Kitsune, the fox. Right. And the, the first one is the Tengu. So you know the one with the cock nose. Yes. I recognize that from Sekiro, one of the yeah. um, from software games. Yeah. So the Tengu is a very specific type of yokai. Um, which evolved a lot during the um, feudal period and then again in the Meiji period. So it was really, really popular in the Meiji period, um, but very, very, very popular in the feudal period. So Tengu originally were these like bird people. Mm. They were deeply inhuman. Um, they were generally a malevolent force, but then the cult of the Tengu evolved a bit through time and you get this more human tengu with the big nose and the red face and they are a really interesting figure in japanese folklore because of their relation with martial ability and so there are some samurai who claim to have been taught their skills by tengu and if you look at early samurai treatises yagyu Minonori's the life-giving sword is a really great example the illustrations that they use to show the techniques the sparring partner was a tengu so it's a red-faced humanoid with bird legs and big wings on its back. Really kind of weirdly, a lot of the visual cues for the Aracocra in D&D come from that second type of Tengu, like Daegu Tengu, they call them. And then Tengu in D&D lore are little distended bird people, and they're always evil. I literally fought them in Sekiro, so I know yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, but the Tengu in Japanese folklore, it kind of so they were they were great sword. They were known for their martial abilities. They were great swordsmen, but they were also kind of these um, rebellious kind of libertine figures. And so they would often go against the government or the empire and the emperor and what they wanted. They were kind of these rebellious figures who would take wayward swordsmen and treat teach them how to defend the weak and so the fact that the first guy who taught him his martial ability was wearing a tengu mask is very relevant do you think that's going to be entrenched in the whole demon slayer like back world building and backstory yeah i mean the fact that the tengu is a kind of oni they're a kind of oni they're a they're a kind of yokai that then mm. come to become kind of more chill with the humans so you think there might be an element maybe later revealed of like a, it takes a demon to beat a demon kind of yeah. thing which is not again it's quite common in these kind of tropes but then the fact that the spirit ghost the force ghost shall we call it yep. just for what just so we can use some of our own parlance was a kitsune a fox is really telling so the fox in Japanese folklore is very, very different to the Western fox. Mm. Um, so Kitsune tended to have the ability to possess humans. And so there are, there, there's this really famous story from Japanese folklore where this little girl becomes possessed by a Kitsune. And she basically says, look, I've got, I've got cubs in the den. I need food. And they give the girl the food and she eats it all. And the fox is like, no, the girl doesn't get the food. My cubs get the food. And so they wrap up a bunch of rice cakes, put them in the pocket of her kimono. She fucks off and comes back without the rice cakes. And then she's no longer possessed. And so there's a lot of stories of Kitsune possessing people. And so while the Tengu has this very, very physic, physical martial connotation, the Kitsune is more kind of about magic and control and the mind. And so the fact that the the one with the Tengu mask taught him how to fight, 
And then the one with the Kitsune mask actually told him how to have control over that power. That's very relevant. Mm. And that's really firmly entrenched in that kind of world. And then again, the specific kind of technique that the Kitsune teaches him is really, really heavily related to um, Zen Buddhism. Right. And the point at which Zen Buddhism and swordsmanship cross over. Um, so there was a chap called uh, there was a chap called Takwan Soho, who was a renegade Zen master. <laughs> Sounds like a Wu Tang Clan. <laughs> Fucking a, he was a pretty cool dude. You can still read his book, The Life Giving Sword by Yagi Menonori, mm-hmm. Hagakure, and then Takwan Soho's work were all kind of related. Takwan Soho was a Zen Buddhist who was basically kicked out of his temple. So he fucked off and lived in the mountains. And one of the things he would do is invite swordsmen up to meet him and they would hold discourse with him. The thing that he taught them was to have no abiding place. So he taught them the Zen Buddhist technique of not allowing your mind to stay in the same place for very long. Basically meditation. Mm-hmm. What we would now understand as transcendental meditation um we we would understand for sure yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. we've all done tm yeah. like you know we've all we've all we've all had that fucking meditation app that tries to teach us how to meditate we all know about the monkey mind yeah I've, i routinely like, achieve nirvana yeah absolutely of course um and so the idea of not having an abiding place in your mind and never allowing your mind to be still but always to be fluid when you're meditating became a really really powerful practice in swordsmanship because it allowed the swordsman to have this very fluid mind where they were never becoming too fixated on, say, the body position of their opponent because they were always looking to exploit that next weakness and to cover up their own next weakness. And that is one of the things that the protagonist talks about. He's like, he he had a different verbiage for it. And I think that might be down to just the fact that where I learned this stuff from, I was reading an academic translation and we're reading a comic book translation and it's two different translators translating the same concept but it was recognizably that concept of not having an abiding place which is what the protagonist was learning there and so you've got the tengu teaching him sword play but then this kind of spiritual projection and again there's this idea of the yokai not as a physical embodiment of anything but as a a, a malicious force that exists and so some of the yokai stories will just be like there is just a presence in your house that's fucking stuff up so the Japanese version of like a poltergeist. Yeah, 100%, 100%. But it's kind of a poltergeist implies something that was dead, that mm. was living and is now dead and is malevolent for that reason. Whereas this is just kind of, it's almost like a force of nature. Yeah, demon and, being an ethereal thing. Yeah, absolutely. And so the idea of like this spectral projection of a person in a kitsune mask teaching him the Zen Buddhist principle of not having an abiding place and relating that to swordsmanship... As soon as I read that, like all of these, you know, 13th to 15th century Zen Buddhist treatises I was reading as a teenager, weird fucking kid, man. Mm. <laughs> and adult. Yeah, like odd dude into some weird <laughs> shit. Um, all of that stuff that I've kind of read and absorbed came back to me and I was like, wow, this is that, the- that set of theory, that set of ideas represented in comic books. And that was kind of dope. That was pretty fresh. Mm. 
So three things I've said yes. on the back of that. Sorry. One, no, no. One is I think I can officially uh, now give you status of official weeb. Um, maybe there'll be a sound effect or something here, but I don't know. It, it, <laughs> I, was, I was thinking more of like a video, like Japanese video game. Like yeah. when you get a coin and go and you hear like the school tune, like way, like that kind of thing. I, I'll see if I can find it. If not, it'll be something generic. Um, Another thing is, I think we might have to record and put a bit at the beginning where it goes, so Jamie's about to speak some Japanese. He does actually know his shit. So it's not, it's not naive, like Westerner. Yeah. For reference for the listener, just so you know that I did come upon this knowledge, honestly, I'm a second down black belt in karate. I did karate from the age of six. I was a national champion in karate. I taught karate for a long time. And so I was reading books about Zen Buddhism and Japanese swordsmanship to kind of further inform my practice as a martial artist, which is why I know this shit. Yeah. Um, I'm not just, I'm not actually a weeb. I just, I had a professional reason to know this stuff. And what I might do is isolate that part and put it right at the beginning <laughs> and go, this is why he says this stuff right at the top of the episode. <laughs> This is why Jamie just goes off on one about 15th century samurai in this one. I was saying, no, specifically the speaking Japanese right at the start. Right, like, yeah, <laughs> the really offensive bad Japanese. Exactly, but if I put that at the beginning, that if I put this right now in the beginning, then people might be like, I'm now prepared for him to speak actual Japanese. Do you know about, like, the, and this is completely off topic, but it's fun. Um, there's this thing that happened in Japanese where, because they adopted Western culture post-war, post-World War II, there was all this stuff that was coming in Japan that they didn't have words for. And so they made a new kind of almost a whole new vein in Japanese language called Gaijin, which is their name for foreigner. Mm. Um, and it's loan words from other languages that they've just kind of adapted to sound right in their language. So I'd like you to guess what a hamburger is in Japanese. Uh, it is a very literal. It's just like um, hamburgeru. Yeah. That's but... that. If you go, if you go into a McDonald's in, in Japan and go hamburgeru, they'll yeah. just give you a hamburger. And that, so that's the equivalent of like us as Westerners taking like <laughs> foreign name things, and we just we keep it the same, but we we bastardize it to our own versions. We anglicize it. Yes, exactly. Yeah, or Franco size it or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, the third point was actually mm. bringing it back to the title again. Mm. Um, so the point i made a note of specifically uh you talking about the how he was learning this this extra level of the sword fighting and everything yeah this is a little bit where my suspension of disbelief was less suspended if that makes sense so again i know it is specifically so tanjiro i yeah i'm going to attempt to pronounce uh becomes good at sword fighting because he can smell the lines of interval and then sees the lines to connect his blade to. So, yeah, when he's talking about the lines of interval, that's mm. the stuff I'm talking about. Right. So what he's developed, so because he says, like, he very specifically says, I don't let my brain stop in a certain place so that I can sense the lot, smell the lines of interval. Mm. And so they're, they're, they're kind of um, rolling that all in with this character feature that he has this weird sense of smell. But actually what is happening there is something that, anybody who has any level of knowledge about japanese swordsmanship certainly early japanese swordsmanship would go oh fuck i i know that i recognize right. that like a, a kendo practitioner or an aikido practitioner who's familiar with the shit that i was reading when i was younger would go oh yeah that's taquan soho that's right. what that is but so with this text in this world specifically it's the smelling <laughs> part that made me go 
what <laughs> i can smell where my sword needs to go and this is this is coming from someone who's like superman can fly batman's a genius bloody the cosmic treadmill makes perfect sense oh, exactly there's a giant penny in the bat cave like that <laughs> that's all fine by me smelling your sword movements <laughs> is where i went wait what do you know what even i was a little bit baffled by that element of mm. it but again i think because i had all that extra context i was like yeah this kind of makes sense like i get it even, I see even the smelling aspect well yeah but they were kind of connecting it to a sense and they were connecting it to something that we already know about that character yeah and then it let further down the line it becomes a big deal for him because he uses um, i don't know if he got there but he's fighting two oni who can disappear under the floor so he can't see them, but he can smell them. So he knows where to put his sword mm. through the floor to get them. That is the one saving grace of this part that I've I've uh, highlighted is they do slowly build the sense of smell being intrinsic to this whole demon yeah. slaying thing. So if it just came out of nowhere, it, I, I would have judged it as bad. Like if it was just this by itself, I would have been like, that's ridiculous and isolated and doesn't make sense. But they are building this sense of smell as, and specifically, you mentioned earlier the trope of the chosen one. This kid has such a strong sense of smell, and that makes him a great demon slayer, because in this world, those things are linked. So that was the one thing I was like, I will forgive it on that, because they are actually building this thing. And and we're dealing with a sh- we're dealing with a type of oni, which again is very traditional. But they're shapeshifters, See, smelling monsters. I, I I was on board for that. Like that's that's <laughs> smelling your sword, <laughs> smelling where the lines where your sword should go. I was like, oh, you, you've leapt a bit forward for me. I'm I'm still with you, but I'm I'm trailing behind a little bit on that concept. Yeah, absolutely. Whereas it, um, what's his name? The one who's a lawyer. Uh, Daredevil. Whereas Daredevil's echolocation. Totally yeah. okay, baby. Yeah, bats do it, so it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, because no animals smell their prey. None at all. Again, smelling monsters, that's fine. <laughs> There's no animals that can smell where their claws should go in a fight. As far as far as I know, I might be wrong about oh, that. Oh, mate, I'm going to do the research. You're gonna Next s- episode, I'm going to be like, right. <laughs> the, the Honey ne- badges. The test will be, right, for a YouTube exclusive video, we're going to blindfold you. We're going to put noise-canceling headphones over your ears, and you're going to smell your way around the flat. I mean, in fairness, mate, my flat is quite an olfactory experience, so true. We'll get you. We'll get you somewhere outside, and I'm we'll see if it grubby works. Grubby comic book nerd in his thirties. What do you think this place smells like? And only recently, the comic book aspect <laughs> <laughs> only recently justified. Um, the one last trope that I, that I yes, made a note of. Sorry, no, no, it's fine. The I went one, off on one, didn't I? That's the whole the point of the podcast. It's kind That's of what why we're here, here for, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. The uh, one last trope that I enjoyed, and this is a smaller part. I just liked this trope kind of going across uh, mediums and genres was the hardened stoic to a fault mentor yeah. becoming emotionally attached to the child they're yes. mentoring. Yeah. And I thought I I was trying to think again of the tropes they reminded me of. Uh the there's probably lots in in manga. I think there's lots of like Dragon yeah. Ball and and One Punch Man and stuff. Uh remind me of Daredevil because his the his mentor stick. Yeah. There's a relationship with them where he's like you're, you're training you to be a soldier for a war of the, you know, the secret war is happening and I don't care if you die. And then there's like, you're too soft for the war, so get out of here. But it's because he cares about him. I suppose, I mean, there's almost, an, there's almost an opposite thing that happens a bit in manga where you've got this highly skilled, highly proficient master who's a bit silly. 
because they've mm. they've reached that point of enlightenment where they don't they've realized that they don't need to be serious like master roshi is i was literally example. about to say him, yeah master roshi is a bit silly because and he's reached a really elevated sense of enlightenment the western version yoda yeah well fucking a and isn't yoda really i mean aren't the the jedi really firmly rooted in samurai traditions yes definitely like you know this kind of ancient school of swordsmanship that yeah. protects the leaders and there's a bit later about the colors of the swords mm. becoming a big thing yeah so um uh, i thought when i was trying to think of tropes of like the emotionally distant but actually cares a lot uh, mentor i went straight to scrubs and dr cox and to a certain extent um master splinter I think he he was never I I I he was think, always a caring patriarch, yeah, wasn't he? I actually? think he I think some versions maybe have him more cold than others and stuff. Yeah. But I think Jen I think the the core text is always he's like a, he's the dad and he's he always very warm. Yeah, he's always like yeah. he, he always refers to Tulsa as his sons. Whereas yeah. this I think it feeds into that trope of if it's a dangerous world, then someone's taking someone on to mentor them. But with this back of the head thought of they're probably going to die soon, so I'm not going to like get attached. I mean, and, and then it just grows naturally. The relationship between the protagonist and that young girl in The Last of Us kind of has an element of that, doesn't it? Oh, for sure. And that's because he's distancing her because he had a daughter her age who died. So he's like, mm. I'm not, I'm trying not to replace my dead daughter. And then obviously it just, again, happens naturally. And then again, we see a very Japanese depiction of death in this, where death is a part of life and the dead are still very much present which is a big deal in japan they they have a very different relationship with death than we do in the west i mean the west has said everyone just becomes poltergeists yeah fucking a but no that idea that um like he freed the spirits of the kids and they were free to be spirits and they were mm. they became you know it's kind of it's a thing in pantheism where when you have a religion that's really intrinsically linked to the land and the law of that land your dead become part of that yeah. Whereas we've kind of lost that because of our monotheistic religion, and so our dead now go to a higher power is the general kind of conversation we have about them. Mm. We tell children that grandma's gone to heaven as opposed to grandma is in the woods protecting us. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And I, the one thing that I forgot to mention earlier, but yeah. you remind me of, was the some panels having like humorous, funny yeah. depictions and drawings. That, I imagine, is a common trope in manga generally as oh, well. Oh, very much so. Manga's funny. Yeah. Well, the only one, I generally, I try to think, I could only think of one that I think Splissy's not, and that is something like a... So I'm trying, I tried to Google best, the anime with motorcycles. It took me to an article <laughs> with 20 best animes with motorcycles. <laughs> I know it's number one, so I just have to, all right, what I was thinking of was Akira. Yeah, right. Okay. So Akira was the only one I could think of was explicitly serious all the time. But Akira is particularly serious yeah so but that so we've established that the the norm manga tone is serious at parts but also then just have a random panel where someone's got a funny face and it's a bit yeah. humorous there's these moments of levity and again those faces you know that like single eye pulled down thing mm. that's just um that's yeah. like a feature of japanese communication isn't it i feel like with this manga specifically the tone is a bit all over the place because of that inclusion when it didn't need yeah. it. Whereas something like a Dragon Ball Z started off with quite a lot of levity, but then it built it up. It built it built up into these serious points that it earned through long character arcs and stuff. Dragon Ball Z is an interesting one because Dragon Ball was a Shojin Jump yeah. comic. Dragon Ball Z was ex pretty much exclusively made to be exported to the West, right? 
Dragon Ball Z was made to be an export that was going to be sent over to America to be to be put on Cartoon Network. Mm. And so I think that's why Dragon Ball Z is kind of always the one that's mentioned by people who don't like manga and anime being like, well, Dragon Ball Z is dumb. And I'm like, yeah, but that's not really... That's not the yeah. actual vibe. <laughs> but that, that definitely explains the differences in the two the two versions or the Yeah, because Dragon Ball and Dragon Ball Z are completely tonally different. I yeah. feel like Dragon Ball is a bit closer to this, really. Yeah. But again, with this, I felt like when you're starting off with kids' family getting slaughtered and then having to rescue his sister who's a demon. Fairly heavy, is it, it was it, I thought the tone was right, like r- like right on the mark, up until it then started to get a bit like yeah funny or attempting funny at points after and then i felt like am i reading the same thing like there's a bit where he tries to find a basket for a sister and the bark is basket's too small and she gets in it halfway it's like this isn't gonna work he's like can you shrink <laughs> but but then it leads into demons can alter size and like and it was a thing established before and reaffirmed in this part so it still served a purpose but i felt like the the humorous aspect of it was a bit weird for the tone yeah 100 percent um I feel as though because of the point that we've both read up to, mm. we're not seeing all the richness. Because this is this is like in its 150th chapter or something. Of course, yeah. I read like 10% of this and I'm making some pretty... Over- we're both making some pretty sweeping statements about it tonally. Yeah. I feel like it, for the for listeners of this episode, either you've read no manga and you're getting like a similar person's opinion of what you also might think getting into it, or you're someone who is very very experienced manga reader and you are seeing the other side of people who don't know it so i feel like we are giving a unique perspective of you know what it's like to start reading this kind of thing i imagine there's probably not as many there's not that many westerners who know as much about folklore as I've oh no you've been you've... able to pull together for this so i'm hoping that even if you are a manga fan my observations about this particular title in relation to like the Japanese folklore tradition and the yokai mm. has been useful. Unless you're one of those neckbeards with the waifu pillow, that that <laughs> might be the one level that might know more than you. Yeah, like if you're somebody who gets your rocks off to an oni, then you probably know more than me. But yeah. <laughs> but I think to to sum up, I would say like again what you said, it's it feels in a very positive way, like there's a lot of potential for where the story can go. Mate, I'm really mm. excited to finish reading it. And I know I equated it to Something's Killing the Children because yeah, a very obvious yeah. monster hunting, saving people. But again, with that, that was also slowly building a world behind the scenes of yeah. the normal world. And there's going to be a lot of more stories and exploration of that world. And it feels like potentially a lot to continue. Because something that you're not familiar with yet is that there is an introduction of a BBEG. A big bad guy, yes. Big bad evil guy. Yes. Did you get to Tokyo? I uh, don't think... No, so I, I got to the... He first got into this big village. It's its his first mission post yeah. the... Was it the final test yeah, or whatever? Yeah, yeah. So, and he just had that um, uh, only disappearing into the walls and the floors. Yeah, so he kills them. Mm. And then he heads to Tokyo to go and fight another Oni. And there is a guy, the the kind of oldest Oni, who is known to be a shapeshifter and who is the only person who can infect humans. So they think he's the only person who can cure a human. And he goes to Tokyo and he sees him with his human family. He's dressed like Michael Jackson for some reason. He's in like a white suit with a white trilby hat over his eyes. He Honestly, the first mm. thing I thought was, why the fuck is Michael Jackson here? 
Um, and he meets him and he kind of realizes that this BBEG that he needs to find and fight and extract information from has a human family. Right. Who don't know that he's an Oni. Mm. Um, and so that's really interesting. And there's a level of intrigue that's coming in. So I feel like at issue 15, I was just starting to lift the skirt a little bit on the main story. Yeah. Which the context you didn't really get. Um, and so we're, I, I'm just, I, I kind of got a glimpse of the richness of the world because I saw early 20th century Tokyo depicted mm. and it looked sick. <laughs> it looked really cool. Um, so yeah, I think there's so much more here that we're not, we've not been able to talk about. Yeah. But I mean, I, I really feel like from 10 to 15 issues, that's more than we would normally give something. Yeah. And I, uh, on that like limited, uh, limited experience i would definitely say it's a good read and it's worth reading more and this for me is going to be it's going to add to a list of after i finished catching up on comics from stuff, last year yeah. so once i've caught up on the superhero era this will be one of those ones like all right i've got some i'm in between issues and i can get some more into this and you know explore a bit more and potentially one day uh, maybe on the barely literate, the behind paywall thing, we might do a viewing of the the movie that was so successful and give mm. our thoughts on that and see how, yeah. as anime, how that stands up. 100% I'd love to talk about the whole story at some point because I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. We'll add it to the ever-growing list of, we should do more on this. Yeah, we should finish this one and talk yeah. about it again. And the difference is it won't be me reading the rest of a Spider-Man run and coming back going, right, this is how they fucked <laughs> up. It'll be me being like, guess what? Yeah. Because there's one more genre of Oni that I just want to talk about that I didn't get to talk about, which is reanimated household objects. Mm. That's a thing. Yeah. And so you're just like, there's stories of people being attacked by like frying pans with, with, with manga faces and shit. Um, and we haven't seen any of that yet, but they are a type of Oni, specifically Oni as well. And so like, I really love the idea that we'll be 50 issues in and he's just like fighting a broomstick or something. <laughs> i'm looking forward to it like, i just it just sounds like a fun time to me so ryan a thing happened recently a thing that is quite integral to the subject of the podcast that we're doing right now fucking eisner awards eisner awards at comic-con which at com does it is it normally a comic-con it's apparently always a comic-con and what's interesting for me and i think for us as well and the listeners is this comic-con seems to be going back towards the direction of just Actual being for comics, comics. Yeah. instead of just being a place for content creators to shill their stuff well by content creators I mean like disney and yeah. marvel and dc warner brothers um i hope it goes that way because it'd be cool if maybe one day if there's if it's less popular for people needing to see like oh my god bloody ant-man 22 we get to see 10 seconds of it yeah. before it gets cgi'd um, if it goes back to comics, then that could be something that we could track out to and be like, oh, it'd be great with comic it? literate coming to Comic-Con. I mean, we'd definitely do either Manchester or London, I think. I mean, we'd have to start off there and yeah, work our way up. So if you could all just send an email. <laughs> just chip in a pound each and uh, well, we should be If you could all just send a Comic-Con and be like, send an email to the Comic-Con people. I don't know who they are. Be comic like, literate deserve a booth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just be like, there's this rad podcast called the Comic Literate Podcast. And we want a face reveal, so mm. you have to let them do a live recording. Exactly. And we'll go on with masks, and then I'll <laughs> we pull them off on stage, and I will reveal my second mask under my first mask. Absolutely, yeah. Exactly. So did any of our favorites get the nod? Yes. Yes, they did. So ones we've done before, I thought was a great one. Best new series mm. was won by... I'm not going to do that every time. Uh, <laughs> if you can hear that on the mics, it's a drum roll. 
It was Public Domain. Oh, what a great one. Yeah, by Chip Zdarsky. And I yeah. honestly, for a comic I enjoyed, and we said it was good. So yeah, we, we have great. We have great taste. Um, but I didn't think it would win. I didn't think it'd be the best new series. Well, it's a fun one for the comic book industry as a whole to highlight because it's deeply critical of everything that they do. That is true, yes. <laughs> Another interesting one, best publication for teens, which they class as 13 to 17. The winner was Do a Powerbomb. Now, I would argue... That's interesting. I would argue that something being good for teens, it's good for adults as well. Like, it's close enough. Yeah, John Green, you know the author. I've, I've heard of him through you, yes. Yeah, he maintains that young adult fiction is just fiction that people actually read. See, I, <laughs> I've also heard apparently the editing and, like, screening for, like, grammatical errors and spelling mistakes, apparently that, that's less in young persons, young adults' fiction. Oh, no, it's pretty fastidious wherever you go, I think. But, well, I, I heard that apparently it's worse than young adult. I have no idea if that's true or not. But it's, it's something that seemed, it made sense to me because I think people just thought, oh, it's, it's about vampires kissing each other. So it'll be, it'll be successful no matter what. <laughs> Whereas if you try and release, like, you know, Great Gatsby 2 or something. Oh, <laughs> God, no, no. Oh, no, it hurts. He's don't back, do he's it. back for revenge. Oh, no, don't, don't. He's back to kick some ass. <laughs> Jay Gats. Jay Gats as a cyborg. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I thought Young Persons, I was like, you know, that's fine. Heartstopper, that's like a critically acclaimed one. That was, a, that was nominated. So. I think the interesting thing about Do a Powerbomb is that it would have been accessible for teenagers. Mm. But there's this really lovely undercurrent story about parenthood yeah. that I think would be missed by most teenagers. And actually, there's something really valuable for adults in there. And this is what I mean. I think if it's good for teenagers... It's it's not like a kid's book. It's not like yeah. first reading level kind of thing. Like I think it'd be good for adults as well. It just seems like a bit of an arbitrary, like, let's get another award in there. I think that's because they, they acknowledge that pro wrestling is a pretty juvenile interest. I mean, as a pro wrestling fan, I agree. Like that's, <laughs> That was the joke. That's what we are. So, I fully on board. <laughs> uh, best writer, interestingly mm. enough, someone we've done two titles from. And that is Alan Ball. <laughs> you haven't read anything, but we wanted to give you an award anyway. No, just it, to get him there, you know. It was James Tynan the Fourth. So House of uh, Something's Killing the Children and Nice House on the Lake. Oh, well, which one did he get it for? But also just best writer. So he's just he over the year. Deserves it. So these are all the things that have contributed over the year yeah. to the best writer status. House of Slaughter, which is a Something's Killing the Children spinoff. Yeah. Uh, Wind, which is a boom uh, thing. Sandman Universe Nightmare Country. So within the Sandman Universe, yeah. by Neil Gaiman, a thing there. Uh, title called The Closet and title called Department of Truth. So apparently they're all really good stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, we've we thoroughly enjoyed both of the things that we read by him, didn't we? It's, so congratulations to you, sir. It's thoroughly deserved. We love your work. And what is great about those is that he the writing was so unique in them, and they especially the such different art styles made them mm. feel like very unique titles in themselves. Yeah. But you could tell there was that character development in both the yep. introspective house lockdown and the big monsters are real kind of uh title yeah no they were both great weren't they they were both really good mm. now one thing is interesting there's an award here for best lettering nice. i i don't know enough about lettering like part of the process so i have a friend who is a professional typesetter right and you know the way that I feel about superhero shenanigans? Mm -hmm. That is the way that he feels about bad kerning. All right. And obviously I know, but for the listeners, what is kerning? Kerning is where 
two letters can kind of sit underneath or on top of each other a little bit comfortably. Mm. And so you push them together just a little bit so they sit on the page better. Right. Once you know what kerning is and you know what good kerning looks like, you will notice bad kerning wherever you see it. Mm. So my advice to anybody would be don't look into kerning. Right. Um, so yeah, no, typesetting is still very much a thing. And so it kind of makes sense. When you say typography, though, what was the exact award for? Lettering. Lettering. So, see, part of me thinks that actually these days you would just take a type font, you take a font and use it. So this is what I mean is I think I had a naively uh, lower uh, assumption of what lettering involved. Who won the Eisner for best lettering? uh, Hang on, let me just get back to that. Best lettering was Stan Sakai for writing Usagi Yojimbo. Is that... I don't know. I manga. Don't, it might. It's from IDW. So who do turtles? So oh, fuck. Cool. I don't. It might be. It sounds like it might be manga inspired potentially. Mm. So if anybody. Oh, and another one actually. Uh, best coloring, Geordie Belair, who did Nice House on the Lake. Apparently. Yeah. Well, that doesn't that just make sense? Yeah. No, that was great coloring. His sense of color is fucking astonishing congratulations I, I, to you i actually don't know if geordie's a man or woman or in between so let's say they, they did a really good job you no know, well they and they did a fantastic job on nice house on the yes. lake and one of the things that you and i kept complimenting on it was the use of color in storytelling great watercolor effect yeah so what was their name again uh geordie belair i think geordie belair congratulations to you yeah fucking thoroughly deserved love yes. your work and then a couple of mentions on the ones we haven't done, John but Ramirez might Jr. get anything. He, I don't see him mentioned, <laughs> and that's all we'll say. Uh, best short story apparently was a title called "Finding Batman," written by Kevin Conroy and a Jay Bone. Do but we know I, Kevin Conroy? Kevin Conroy is the the famous voice of Batman who passed away, oh. and apparently is to do with DC Pride 2022. So it might, I, I suspect, it might be about Co- Kevin Conroy's experience voicing batman so that could be an interesting one to do we should read that yeah um best single issue one stop one shot batman one bad day the riddler written by tom king king by name king by nature he's the king of combo criers (laughs) and a mitch jarrods uh best continuing series nightwing now i tried nightwing not good everyone's raving about it and it wasn't quite up to par for me. Nightwing's Robin, isn't he? He was a Robin, yes. Yeah. A Robin. I think we might have he to... He was a Robin. He was, he was the first Robin, so yeah. yeah. Um, we might have to do that one at some point, because I'd be, I'd be fascinated to get your take on it, because yeah. it's one of bloody Eisner Awards, yeah, so maybe I'm Eisner. missing something that you might get from that it. I might see in it, yeah. Um, and best limited series is one we are absolutely going to do, The Human Target by Tom King, King by name, King by nature. Fucking love Tom King, don't you? Tom King, I think, might be the best, like comic but superhero comic book writer for the main two we know that he's not though no the best comic book writer is robert kirkman for invincible no you the, the, be- <laughs> the best comic book writer best is, sorry, superhero comic book writer the best superhero comic writer is whoever wrote the uh, most recent blue beetle run <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I might have to debate you on that one but uh we both know who it is yes and we said his name at some point i'll cut it in later are you going to ADR it in? I'll probably ADR it in, yeah. Nice. But so, yeah. <laughs> Ice and Water, I think we're definitely going to keep uh, on point of this for years to come. I think that'd be a good thing. This is like the Oscars of the comics, essentially. Yeah. So, and I think some great picks here. And ones that we, I, I, I certainly have used previous Eisen Awards as like a, let's do this. Yeah, absolutely. Like yeah, no, we, and, and, and one of the things that we look for is Eisner winners. 
it's one of the it's where when we're looking for something really great, we look at what's won an Eisner and what hasn't, you know? Exactly. So this will influence our going forward and hopefully one day we'll be there to present an award for, for best lettering. And we'll start the speech with we started a podcast. We didn't know what lettering <laughs> actually was. I think there needs to be and maybe we would need to sponsor it, mm. but a comic the comic literate Eisner for best panel layout. Yeah, we could start that. Yeah, that'd be a difficult one to judge because I I think we we've we've only just recently got to the point of good and bad. Yeah, getting to like best would be right. I think another level of like review and best panel layout of any comic that we've read. I think for me, I mean for me, it's one I don't think we've done. We haven't done yet. It probably would be Human Target for me. Yeah, I mean I like what they did with Old Man Logan. Yeah, that was a really good one where they had the DNA strand and there was two fight scenes happening either side of it. That, I don't think, that wasn't in the Old Man... That was in Old Man Logan, the, the following series. Yeah, but so, you know the one I mean, yeah, yeah, that was a That was a, a great, uh, unique use of yeah. the timelines and of, of panels. Um, I think we'd have to have a real thought. I mean, we're going to do an end-of-year wrap-up best-of, so we are that going to That could be one to, of our awards. Is, we are going to have to decide. <laughs> so we're going to have to literally go back through all the other titles that we said were good and go and then look at them comparatively go which of these that we read was the best layout i think uh nice house on the light could be a strong contender yeah that was cool that was fun i remember being quite impressed by supergirl yes that did some good ones that did interesting stuff with the monologuing yeah. so that, that would go across the different panels wouldn't it? really good use of thirds yes i really like the use of thirds there yeah panel, panel layout became a thing in the podcast didn't it that's that gonna be our that's gonna be the thing we get known for it's like <laughs> They review panel layout. Someone's gonna be like, uh, "Excuse me, <laughs> excuse me, Tom King. Um, you've won an award. Uh, I've not heard of who's gifting the award. It's the Comic Literate Podcast, and apparently you won Best Layout. And he's gonna be like, "Oh, I didn't do the layout for that for that title." So just recently, I bought a medal for somebody as a joke, and I realised that I bought a medal and had it engraved for two pound fifty. And it was at that moment in my life that I realized that medals are now cheaper than greeting cards. Wow. So all of my family this year, instead of getting greetings <laughs> cards, are getting engraved medals. I think when we do our cheers and jeers for the year, mm. we should have some really nasty medals made up and send them to those people's press offices. Nasty medals for positive awards. Yeah, no, absolutely. And we'll get the fuckers engraved. Right. And it'll be like comic literate podcasts, comic literate year roundup awards best panel layout and then either their name or the title and we just send it to them there's gonna be a massive medal that's gonna look like flavor flavors clock (laughs) just a massive plate of metal well what what we'll do then is we'll just have the medal and it will say like the the name of the award and the name of the winner and then there'll be a little certificate that they can put on their fridge and it'll be laminated because somehow we'll have access to a laminator if anybody's got a laminator yeah let us us come around and use it (laughs) it can be a patreon reward we come around and use your laminator (laughs) sword all sword should we get back to it i mean i think we're done with the episode now so we'll go into the ending which is me so Thank you very much for listening. As always, because I haven't had an, I haven't had many responses on this yet. If you were doing anything interesting while you were listening to the podcast, please send us an email at comicliterate@gmail.com. I'd love to know what you're up to. And then, yeah, you can leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts from. Hopefully, Pocket Casts. Yep. 
Thank you so much any, for listening. Any uh, top reviews we will naturally read on the air. Or any really offensive comments about the Nazis being socialists. Yep, as long as you give us five stars, then we will, <laughs> we will read out anything. So thank you so much for your time and have a lovely day or thank, night. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye.